Warning, the following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Every person thinks they would never succumb to the addictions that litter this world. None of us realize just how easy it is to fall into the trap of addiction. We assume it would never seduce us, never impact us, never kill us. But we'd be wrong, deadly wrong. Following are the true accounts of just a small percentage of people who struggle with addiction issues. We are honored to share their stories. Welcome. 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 Welcome to Addicted. Well, welcome back to another episode of Addicted. On this episode, I'm excited. I've got a friend of mine from the indie podcasting world who has definitely been a great supporter of my show, and I'm super excited for her to introduce herself. But before we get there, this episode's going to be a little bit different. This isn't somebody who suffered from addiction, but she is on the front lines trying to help people. So I felt it was a different perspective to kind of give resources and just kind of just just little tidbits about how you can help yourself. So with that being said, Alex, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you. Why don't you introduce yourself and your podcast and then we'll get into it. Perfect. Thank you. Hi, I'm Alex. I'm one of the co-hosts of Weird Distractions podcast. Uh, Weird Distractions is a weekly podcast where we rotate between true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, folklore, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But outside of podcasting, I am a full-time adult case manager. So I work in the mental health and addiction field in Ontario, Canada. What kind of experience has that been like for you or what made you want to do that? Ooh, that's a, that's a big question. Um, so I guess I'll start off with why I picked the field. Um, first and foremost, I'm not good at math. So accounting taxes, numbers, anything like that was kind of out of out of the picture for me. But mostly I grew up with addictions in my family. So both sides of my family uh, suffer from alcoholism, as well as mental health, major depressive disorder, you know, suicidal ideations, attempts, all of that stuff. So I have always been aware of kind of the struggle that humans face on a regular basis when it comes to internal struggles and addictions. So that really pushed me to, I guess, the career I chose. And I grew up also in a small town where, you know, I think at one point we were rated one of the highly populated meth areas in the world, like in, I shouldn't say the world, but in in our province, I want to say in Ontario. So the discussion around addiction has always been around me. And being an empath and being someone who has witnessed, you know, loved ones go through addictions, I thought, okay, I I know my calling. I'm going to be, you know, uh, an addiction counselor. That was, that was the title I always work towards. I always want to be an addiction counselor. I always wanted to help people. And yeah, it's, it's definitely opened my eyes to how mental health and addictions are still so misunderstood, even in 2022. Um, I would say the line of work I'm doing now has really made me more of a patient person, even though a lot of people would probably disagree. But I I swear, it really has made me a patient person. Um, It's made me a lot more understanding. And it's definitely opened my eyes to how 
how people live their lives, right? Like I think sometimes we get so sheltered and, you know, kind of stuck in our own life that we don't really know about how people are struggling outside of our four walls. So it's definitely allowed me to experience different experiences, like not to sound silly and simple about it, but it really has. And it's really shown me the other side of, you know, how people are struggling, I guess, outside of my own personal experiences with friends and family. Is this something that you went to school for? Yes. So I have a bachelor's degree um, from the University of Guelph, which shout out to my fellow Griffins, wondering if you're still paying your student loans too, because hi, I am. Uh, But yeah, I went to the University of Guelph uh, and I graduated with a bachelor's degree in sociology, which is the study of uh, how social groups interact with one another in the most simplistic definition of it all. Um, And then I did a post-grad certification, so basically two semesters at Mohawk College in Hamilton, Ontario, and that was uh, for concurrent disorders. So concurrent disorders is when you are dealing with severe mental illness and severe addiction simultaneously. Like They're basically one's not without the other. That's actually where I got the most information about what I would be getting into. Um, You know, the University in Ontario is great um, if you have you know a lot of money you don't have to worry about student loans after but for me I felt that I really struggled because it wasn't anything tangible like it wasn't anything I I, I was going to use in the field it was all theory or statistics or you know weird fluffer courses that you need to take just to get your degree but you know the concurrent disorders course I took oh my gosh like I learned so much in such a short amount of time and that I've actually applied to in my line of work. How do you theoretically like help somebody? Like, is it something, do they come to you? Do you like, is it, are they locked up? Are they like in a mental health facility? Like, how does that go? So I won't name drop the agency, but the agency I do work for currently is a community-based agency. So that means that, you know, we don't have a hospital or an inpatient program. You know, we we just have an office. Pretty boring, but it is what it is. And the way that people get connected to my program is they go to our intake program and they usually complete an obvious intake where they talk about, you know, what they're currently struggling with, their mental health and addictions history, who they're connected with right now. Like, do they have, you know, a counselor? Do they they have a doctor? Do they have a psychiatrist? Who's on their side? And if there's nobody, okay, that's that's definitely one thing we need to work on. And then unfortunately, a lot of times people that come into my program through intake are on a wait list for a very long time because my team only has about four people working in it right now, um, just due to funding. And that's just kind of how the program works. So at any point in time, my caseload can be as low as maybe four 14 people, but as high as 25. So at any given time, like I could have 25 people that I'm connecting with on a weekly basis and other weeks it's, you know, I'm, I've got 14, but then of course there's other work that needs to be done. Like as a community mental health worker, I'm often doing 17 different things at once, whether it's, you know, directly with clients or groups or trainings or, you know, secondary work that thanks to the coronavirus has, uh, given me. Um, So for example, I do case management, but I've also been doing single session work. So I connect with people for one session to kind of talk about, okay, what's going on? Here's some, here's some psychoeducation, here's some coping strategies, you know, goodbye and good luck basically. Um, So I've been doing that now for two years, which has kind of allowed me to be a little bit more clinical in my work, like more therapeutic um, because 
Obviously, I'm not a registered therapist. I cannot provide therapy. (laughs) But with that kind of additional work, I've been able to at least provide psychoeducation. So for example, I think my last single session, I had somebody who was just understanding the fact that they have a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, as well as a history of suicide attempts and currently drinking a little bit of a little bit more than they should in terms of alcohol. Um, so we, we talked about, you know, maybe, okay, what's underlying, what is causing all of this to happen and what is, what does this mean and what do you want to change? Right. Cause a lot of times when people come to our services, it's because they're tired of how things are going and they want to change or they know they need to change, but they just don't know how. And that motivation can sometimes like ebb and flow, especially when it comes to addictions, because you are literally trying to convince yourself that not doing a certain substance is going to be better for you when in reality, your brain is also telling you, but you've been smoking, you know, marijuana, crack cocaine, you know, you've been doing meth for 12 years. This is all you know, right? So why would you change? The human brain hates change. So I find a lot of times when I'm dealing with specific, not even specific, but when I'm dealing with addiction clients who, you know, they're, they're wanting addiction counseling, they're wanting to get connected to other resources. And I'm kind of the middle person. We have conversations of, okay, so, you know, today you want to change and that's totally fine. But what do we do when you're, you know, you kind of convince yourself you don't like, is there anything we can do to plan around that? Because it will happen. It will a thousand percent. It's the same when you're trying to like, think of it as when you're trying to add something to a morning routine, right? Like trying to get up early, you're going to hit the snooze button for the first five days. You're not actually going to get up when you plan on getting up, right? And that's just your brain kind of trying to pump the brakes and say, no, 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 we like doing this. The thing that we've been doing for so long because we've been doing it for so long and it's a part of a routine. So why change that, right? Is there any specific substances that you would, I guess, classify like that you just handle or is it everything and is it the whole spectrum? Everything and anything under the sun. Um, I've had... So I guess I should kind of backtrack a little bit. At one point, I I did get my dream job. Um, I was an addiction court support worker uh, in my hometown. And I basically, I saw everything. I saw everything from, you know, uh, people who have been drinking since the age of six and now they're 50, right? Or people who have, you know, started dabbling with cocaine and now they're heavily into fentanyl. Um, people that were, you know, accident not accidentally, who knows, but people that were given one drug and told, oh yeah, this is this. And then all of a sudden now they're, you know, into heroin, right? It's, I, I've seen it all, unfortunately, um, which is kind of the heartbreaking thing too, right? Because um, I know, Kevin, we were talking talking about my age before, but I'm only 28. And it's, it's, it's sad to kind of think about it that way, right? Like being as young as I am in the field and having met so many people who have, you know, dealt with so many things. It's, it's, it's a lot to take in. Would you say that mental health kind of goes hand in hand with addiction? Is it usually some trauma based some, you know, whatever the trauma might be that, that kind of leads them down that road? For sure. Um, I have yet to meet somebody who is struggling with substance use that hasn't had some kind of, you know, mental health struggle one way or another, or some kind of trauma that's unresolved or, you know, not fully dealt with, right? I know there's this huge debate 
And even in my education and even now, you know, this huge debate of, you know, what leads to what, right? Um, Is it the chicken or is it the egg? Well, to be honest, it's the farm. Like it's the whole thing. It's everything in itself. I find a lot of times the people I'm currently connecting with now that do have, uh, you know, addictions and, you know, mental health, it's well, you know, I was in this major car accident when I was seven. And since then, you know, I haven't been able to cope because I'm so scared of death. So my first coping strategy that I can remember was, I don't know, stealing my mom's cigarettes. And then it kind of went from something so small to now I do cocaine every two weeks or every day, or, you know, it's, it takes one thing, like one unhealthy coping mechanism to blossom into something that you become so dependent on on without even realizing it until it's at that point where it's like, oh, wait, this is not, this is not how I should, well, I should have dealt with it, but this is not how I have wanted to dealt with the trauma or deal with my mental health. Certain medications in Ontario, they're kind of covered under OHIP, which is kind of our like medical insurance plan in Ontario. But a lot of them aren't. And if you don't have benefits, they can be very expensive. So what you have is, you know, people that are dealing with anxiety, depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, who might not be able to afford their medication to, you know, mute their symptoms, but they can afford, you know, a gram of marijuana or they can afford, you know, a Mickey of vodka. And you have that kind of to mute the symptoms, right? You have something easier to get to make the pain go away, which is unfortunately what I see a lot of times. Does Canada treat addicts the way the United States does, where they very much criminalistic? Oh, yeah, a thousand percent. I mean, that's kind of a political debate in itself, right? Like, what do you, what is considered harmful enough that it should be criminalized versus what isn't, right? And I remember when I got into the addiction court role, the counseling position, my first client, um, it was before marijuana became legal. And my first client was charged with possession of like a shit ton of marijuana, like a shit ton, but also shatter. Oh, great. Which is whack. Basically, it's concentrate. I remember literally his main argument was, in four months, this is going to be legal, but yet they want me behind bars. And it's like, dude, I hear you. Like, this is stupid, right? But it's, you know, it, it's, it's, such a, it's such a backwards way of dealing with it, right? Like we have literal rapists who serve less time than people who, you know, have a couple grams of something on them, right? Like it's, it's so stupid. Like you actually have somebody that's inflicting pain on another breathing human being in and out of jail. But then you have somebody who literally doesn't, who, who might have, you know, substances on them because that's their coping strategy. Like that's their coping mechanism and you throw them in jail. And it's like, that makes no sense. You are literally not cause, like you are not stopping the problem. You're causing more problems by doing that, in my, in my opinion. In your opinion, since marijuana has been legalized in Canada, have you seen a drop in other substance abuse cases? Like, are people choosing marijuana over other substances? 
I wish that was the case. I mean, where I live specifically, so I'm in southwestern Ontario, and I would say it's great that marijuana is legal. Like, I think there are huge benefits to it. And to be honest, I don't really... I know there's people out there that believe that, you know, marijuana is a gateway drug and there's total debates for sides of that. Like I, I've heard, I've heard it. I know it. I get it. But since then I've noticed more overdoses for things like fentanyl and, you know, methamphetamine. I'm not, I don't know if there's anything, if like there's a correlation between the two. I don't know if it's like, okay, well, now marijuana is legal. Anyone can get it, right? So I'm going to do something stronger or harder or what have you. Um, It's really hard to say. Plus, I guess I should also mention a lot of times we have cases where there are people lacing things with more addictive things, right? So, for example, you could buy... Uh, I don't know. Let's let's hypothetically say you could buy like a joint off your your regular dealer, right? And without knowing, it could be laced with something way more addictive, and then all of a sudden you start craving that more and more and more. And so you go to your dealer and you say, "Hey, like that joint was really good, but like different side effects. You know what what was in it? Oh, by the way, it was X Y Z, right? And then you get hooked, and that is. It blows my mind, right? Like, it's how can you do that to another human being who literally only came to you for one thing? You're you're putting their life at risk a thousand percent. And people just don't, they don't get it. Right. It's one of those things that you don't know what medications they're on. You don't know what, what, you know, what their heart can take, you know, stuff like that. And there's a lot of substances and reactions that people have that you unknowingly just expose them to. A thousand percent. And not only that, but, you know, then all of a sudden that person is now addicted to something way more lethal, way more addictive, and they're hooked and they can't walk away from it. And this is where we start getting the overdoses, right? Because they're, they got into this dance without even realizing who they're dancing with. And unfortunately, in most situations, it's something a lot stronger than I think what they anticipated, right? And, you know, a lot of times too, some people think that oh it's fine it's like a one-time thing it'll never happen like I'm not going to get addicted to it and I wish I, I I wish I could meet someone that that's happened to because I've had even like close personal friends where oh I tried coke once it's not that big of a deal like I'm not going to get addicted to it and then two three years later they're addicted to meth and it's like I'm not saying that every case is like that but what I have seen it escalates because you're chasing something that will never be fully met. And that is the high. And people, you know, people don't know or don't understand that the high is ne- will never be fully obtained. And if it is, then usually it's like on the cusp of an overdose, right? Until you're either brought back to life by Narcan or Naloxone or whatever it may be. But it's, it's, it's really scary. Like, it's very scary to see. So just your opinion, just kind of something that I'm curious to, to for your take, since you do kind of work on the front line with addicts. Do you feel like if drugs were more accessible, like legal, for example, everything I'm and I'm not discriminating, I'm saying everything was legal for for personal consumption. Do you think that would help combat some of this, this, I don't know, the stigma around addicts, maybe? Or, you know, do you feel like that would help people? 
I see both sides of why it would be and why it wouldn't be. So I'm kind of torn. I'm very, I'm very Swiss about it, so to speak. I'm very in the middle of, you know, I see both sides and I I don't know if I could put my pendulum on like one yes or no, because on one hand, in a perfect world, like in an absolute perfect world, if we could have all substances legal and have specific using sites where people that are using certain drugs can come, they can take it safely, which means with like, you know, clean utensils, um, maybe medical staff nearby, and then they could be monitored just for a little bit just to make sure that they don't overdose or that whatever, then a thousand percent. Um, I definitely think that would be ideal. Like, I think that would be a great way to say, yeah, you know what, we can, we can try this and we can see how it goes and we can see how it affects the population as a whole. On the other hand though, like my biggest fear I think would be, this is as a a kid that, you know, started drinking at age 14. And, you know, I think I'm trying to remember when I started using marijuana, like I think myself personally, I think it was 16, 15, 16, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And if certain populations, like certain age groups or could get access to it that that's my only fear and this is coming from somebody who's not a parent also like i am i have no offspring to worry about (laughs) but it's very you know it's i can see why that would be a big argument right like that was i think one of the biggest arguments when it came to legalizing marijuana in canada was well what if the kids get it into it and it's like well kids are gonna get into it and i find marijuana isn't you know as intense or severe for some emphasis on some as other substances. Now, am I saying that, you know, 16-year-olds should have access to fentanyl? Absolutely fucking not. <laughs> like, without a doubt, no, no. But what I'm saying is, is I see where there's the fear and I see where there's like the contention of, okay, no, we cannot make every substance legal. But I think we're doing maybe an unjust, at least trying and trying to provide that in such a safe space because that's another thing too like people are so up in arms about you know uh, safe needle sites or safe deposit need like you know it's oh it, it makes the town look trashy yeah so with safe needle sites that doesn't make a, a society or a community look trashy in my mind what what makes a quote-unquote trashy community is a community that is so outdated in its beliefs and morales and you know the lack of understanding that there's going to be different people out there that are going to want to do different things you have to let them do them you know you have to be willing to accept your fellow neighbor and accept who they are as a person i mean if they're a rapist or a murderer um or if they're ted cruz you know yeah you know probably not i wouldn't personally. Um, But just because somebody is wanting to practice harm reduction because they have an addiction or like that, that is their coping strategy. That doesn't make your community less safe. It actually makes it safer for them. And when they feel probably accepted by their community, it probably makes them feel better and more motivated to do better things for themselves and maybe give back to the community. Like so much can happen when a community is more accepting. And I think that's where we're maybe lacking as a as a world where we're not allowing for these safe use places to occur just to even see what happens, right? Like I would love to see the outcome of, you know, an experiment where people are given the opportunity to actively use the substances they they need to and 
do it in such a safe way and not get criminalized for it. Because the second you criminalize somebody for it, and there's so much stigma with it, right? Like, there's so much stigma. So it's like, well, shit, of course they're not going to want to participate in the community. Why would they? The community turns back on them. Don't hate me if I'm wrong, but I think in Oregon, they've started trying to do safe needle sites, basically, where they allow people to go, A, get clean needles, exchange their needles, right? So use needles for clean needles, but also in a medical setting, being being able to use whatever drug it is that they're using. So in case if they overdose, they have medical staff on site that actually help them. That's what we need everywhere. Honestly, like to have medical staff just nearby watching from a non-judgmental lens just to make sure that that person isn't going to overdose or hurt themselves. I think that is the best way to go about it. So if, if that if that could be an option, that'd be great. Right. Because the reality is that no matter how much we tell people don't do something, they're still going to do it. Right. Like you don't criminals still get guns. Right. Like you can still like, oh, no, I'm a criminal. The law says no gun. OK, cool. I can can't have a gun, but that's not how it works, right? I, I equate it to like abstinence when you were a kid, right? Don't have sex. What was the first thing you thought about? I'm going to go have sex. Why are you telling me not to have sex? So my my whole thing around, you know, like like substances and, and again, like I'm with you, we're not, le- I'm not talking about legalizing it for fucking 12 year olds, right? Adults, right? Like alcohol, I equate it to alcohol. Alcohol, in my opinion, I'm not a big drinker. I was when I was younger, but alcohol is disgusting. Like it makes you feel like shit. You know what I mean? Like it really fucks your insides up and it's no judgment who uses it obviously i'm not that's not what i mean but like alcohol is poisoning your body but yet you're telling them oh you can't use you know cocaine or you can't use this or you can't use marijuana you know what i mean so that's the i'm struggling with the fact that one thing over here is legal but not this over there you know what i mean Exactly. No, and I agree. And I think sometimes we forget how bad alcohol really is as a substance because it's so socially accepted, right? Like there was obviously there have been times where it hasn't been. I mean, hello, prohibition, but what happened when they were told no, you had a whole bootlegging industry pop up because of it. Exactly. So to me, it's people forget how bad alcohol is and how, you know, it's just as addictive as, you know, anything else, but because it's so socially acceptable, it's considered, well, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. You know, it's not, it's not that big of a deal. It's like, it is though. It really, really is. And people lose their lives over it. They lose their livelihood. They lose literally, well, their lives. They lose everything. Right. And yet it's less stigmatized than somebody who is using heroin or crack or, you know, any, any other substance, right? It's because you can go and buy it at a fancy store or get it from a convenience store or have it at dinner. It's not that big of a deal. But the second that someone says, you know, maybe in a non-legalized place, oh, I'm, I'm going to go have a joint before we leave because I'm really anxious and this is how I cope. It's, oh, but you're going to smell and everyone knows the smell of marijuana is not that great. And so it's funny that you bring up the social acceptance of alcohol. So the other night I was at a work party and I was listening to people talk. I'm very socially awkward. I tend to shut down and and be real quiet in in like a social setting. So I was just listening to people talk and these are all, all the management, I guess, within the office. And they're talking about, I've got 
so I've got my VP, which is, you know, the bigger boss and my boss is there and everybody else. And I'm sitting in this corner of this table and all they're talking about is alcohol. Oh man, it's so cool. I drink this bourbon and oh, I like smoking cigars and drinking bourbon and oh, I drink every day and blah, blah, like all this. And I'm like just sitting there and I'm just digesting it and I'm listening and I'm like, this is socially acceptable. This is what we've been taught that this is socially acceptable to drink every day. Oh, it's cool. I'm not an alcoholic. I drink with my wife every day. It's fine. But you are an alcoholic. You, you, you're dependent upon that. Even if you have two drinks a day, you're still, you're, you're dependent on that drink. If you're thinking about that drink at noon at five o'clock, you have a dependency on it, right? Whether it's one or two drinks, you know what I mean? It's so odd that people don't understand how bad it is for you, right? I mean, I'm someone that, you know, I started drinking when I was fairly young, like I I was 14. And, you know, in the area I grew up in, it was okay, every weekend you always had plans because that's what you were doing. You know, especially once you hit high school, you always, that's all you and your friends really did. You know, we'd all get together, we'd go to a party, we'd party at someone's parents' house, you know, and as much as we were A, underage, and B, you know, it wasn't legal, it was way more acceptable than, you know, the second somebody, you know, had a, uh, was pregnant as a teenager. Right. But it's like, you know, I, I mean, they're, they're vastly different things what I'm comparing them to, but like the social acceptance of it all, it's just, it boggles my mind. Like it always really has. It's okay. So why is it more okay for me to get completely shit faced at a party drinking, but I can't, you know, do, you know, edibles or gummies. Like I feel more awkward because it's just seems like this taboo thing that, you know, people don't really like and they don't, you know, you, you might as well just drink instead, but I'm sorry. I feel, I always feel like crap after I drink and that makes me not want to do it. Whereas, you know, if I'm ingesting marijuana or doing something else, it's like, I don't feel as bad. (laughs) It has more, I don't feel as crappy physically. So to me, it's kind of an easy pick of which one I'd rather do. But because even though it's legalized in Canada, you know, there's some people that are feel very strongly that it shouldn't still like it shouldn't be and I feel very negative about people that use it it's it's like well what's good for me won't be good for you but that doesn't mean that you have to stigmatize me or you know put a, a target on my back because what works for me won't work for you right and that that goes with treatment right what works for some people that are you know on the recovery journey will not work for everybody else around them right you know I've got a couple of clients who attend AA Alcoholics Anonymous and they swear by it. They love it. But I've met people in my life, work-wise and personal, who you, you would never catch them at a meeting because it's 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 not their cup of tea. And I get it. It's the same with, you know, um, when it comes to mental health treatment or and or mental health treatment, I should say. You have people that think, oh yeah, therapy is the best way to go. Like you need to go talk to somebody. And then there are people who would really benefit from it, but refuse to because they don't want to talk about their feelings or emotions. They'd rather just be quiet and, you know, hide it, internalize it because that's what they've been, you know, brought up to do, or that's what, you know, society is telling them one way or another, or somebody in their life that meant something to them told them that. And so what works for some will not work for everybody. We should take away that stigmatization that just because we're all human beings doesn't mean we all have to do the same thing. We don't all have to agree on the same thing, but we all 
have to at least agree that we need to treat one another with respect and stop stigmatizing people because they don't want to do what you want to do. That That's a perfect segue. My next question was going to be how, in your opinion, being that you worked directly with, you know, with mental health and, and addictions, like how do we break that stigmatization for the general public surrounding addicts? Ooh, yeah, that's a toughie because it's the same. It's this, it's been the same conversation I'd say for the last twenty years, um, if not more. I mean, I'm I'm still what they consider a young buck in my field because you know I've been in the field. I think, oh gosh, um, it's been under a decade, but I've definitely been in the field for over five years now. And honestly, without sounding corny, I think the more people talk about it, the better. Right. And the more transparent we are about our struggles, I mean, I've had single sessions where I'm teaching clients the 54321 grounding exercise. And I will be very upfront and honest. And I'll say, I use this myself because I sometimes get anxiety, especially with the pandemic. Like, there have been times where I'll be at a grocery store, a grocery store that I know from the back, like the back of my hand, and I will get very anxious. And I have, I have to ground myself because I'm, I feel like I'm about to dissociate and I don't want to do that because I need to get my groceries (laughs) and no one else is going to get them for me. So I find that the more that we can say, hey, I'm a human too and I've struggled or I know what it's like to struggle to some degree, I think that will help the, you know, destigmatization of it all. On top of that, we just need more options. It's like options for treatment. Like we need more, I don't want to say facilities or anything of that nature, but we really, we need something like something has got to give. I mean, there have been clients that I've met with as my, within my role as a case manager or in my previous roles, who've been on wait lists for over a year, right? There have been clients that have died on our wait list waiting for supports because of addictions, suicide, you know? And I'm not, that's not to blame any, like, that's not to blame any of the workers for not being able to pick those people up because as, as a worker, we also have to have capacity and Hey, we're also human too. Right. Um, within the last year, I I think I've been burnt out for two years. Like it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard work. So, you know, there's no one to blame at that level, but there needs to be more options. And unfortunately with offering more options, there needs to be more people. There needs to be more funding. I will say I, I, I come from, I think, a province where there has been more provincial funding than previous years, but it's hard to see where that funding goes right away. And it's just, it's, it's a very frustrating cycle because, you know, you, as, as frontline workers, we say, okay, this is the issue. This is what we see. It goes to management, then it goes to upper management, then it goes to, you know, the executive director, then it goes to the board of directors, then it goes to parliament or whatever it goes. And then it's, it gets lost amongst everything else that's going on because the world's falling apart. Like, you know, mental health and addictions are one problem amongst millions of problems that are going on. But I think to start, we just need to be more transparent, actually have these conversations and actually talk about them because the more we talk about it, the more we know about it, the more people feel more comfortable talking about it. We, my co-host, Chris and I, this is like, we talk, we say this all the time when it comes to missing persons cases that we cover. Missing person cases in terms of research and talking about them, frustrate me because I just want resolution. I'm a very 
you know, beginning, middle, end kind of person. But I've challenged myself in doing those cases because there is benefit in talking about it. And we've seen that. Like we've seen we've seen the the benefit of bringing these cases up that people have never heard of of missing people because you know the cases have gone cold for so many years and it's like okay well now that we've talked about it we've brought it out we're putting it out to the stratosphere hopefully something can come out of it and i think that's what we need to do when it comes to addictions and mental health it's okay the more that this person says that they struggle and this person says that they struggle and you know this person who has been sober for 25 years this is how they get you know go through day by day in their recovery because recovery never ends like it's just you're always in recovery even when it comes to mental health even when it comes from literally anything you're always going to be in some formal like some form of recovery but the more that we know about it so i admire prince harry and his brother who i am so sorry i forget his name at the top of my head but i admire their openness to talk about mental health because of their mother like princess diana she was such an advocate for mental health and for you know speaking her truth and we need more people of that level in society to actually speak up about it right even who was i think it was kim kardashian who after the whole paris attack thing she was very upfront and saying like i have panic attacks now i have ptsd like i don't know if she's exactly said that but she's she was having symptoms like ptsd like symptoms you know when celebrities are being upfront honest of oh yeah like i've struggled with this i've struggled with that it's just a reminder that no matter what, people can be affected by addictions and mental health so easily and so rapidly. And that's what we need to keep talking about. That's that's my hot take. I, I, I agree. It's definitely something that needs to be talked about. I know just as far as like the mental health aspect and, and maybe you just dis can disagree with me and that's fine. But I know since the early 2000s is kind of when I was coming into like my adolescence and my teenage years. And just since that time to now, the perspective on mental health has changed in my opinion. Now, is it where it needs to be? No, fuck no. But has it gotten better? I feel like it has. And I think that comes from being able to talk about it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But it's not the same for addictions. Right. That's the hard part. And and that's where that's where you, you, you're absolutely correct, where we need to talk about it. We need to have these conversations and which leads me into my next question of what kind of resources are out there for addicts to get clean or for mental health to be taken care of? Like what are kind of some kind of resources that you see that somebody can can kind of take the steps for themselves? The thing with addictions is that at some point in the addiction, you become very isolated. Even if you're using with other people, you become so isolated from everybody else one way or another or from people that you used to associate with. So my recommendation would always be to see what kind of group settings are available. I'm not necessarily pointing to AA or NA, which is Narcotics Anonymous, but you know, I know where I work, we offer like psychoeducational groups about addictions and mental health or, you know, the addiction process. And I think anything to that nature is really, really beneficial as well as being upfront and honest about what your goal is, right? So even before you, you know, start reaching out to community-based resources or even, you know, medical resources, are you wanting to abstain? Are you wanting to practice harm reduction? Like where, where do you want to go? Um, and then of course, because 
when it comes to addictions, you know, I think it is beneficial to get some kind of medical assistance if you're able to. I know in the States, medical care is a little bit of a I don't want to say a gamble, but it's a pain in the ass. That's for sure. Yes. It's a pain in the ass. So I would say, you know, talk to your family doctor, let them know, let them know what your goal is. And then from there, okay, you know, is it doing an inpatient program? Is it, you know, trying a medication that suppresses your cravings for something? Right. And then if it's in a situation where the person is perhaps using the substances or realize they're using the substances because of an unresolved trauma, I would definitely recommend some form of trauma therapy. There are tons of different options out there. You know, in Ontario, Canada, for example, you could go to, you know, a private counselor. I mean, if you have the funds, because private counseling, I think most of them are 80 plus dollars an hour. So, you know, you're paying out of pocket. If you can wait, if you're able to wait, there are free options like the non-for-profits and everything like that. There are, you know, free online resources too. So for example, there is a website called Together All and that's T-O-G-E-T-H-E-R-A-L-L. It used to be called Big White Wall, but for obvious reasons, they changed the name. It's so bad. It's so bad, but yeah, they've changed their name. Thank God. Uh, it's a free online website where basically there are a various amounts of different resources, whether it's specifically mental health, like maybe you're looking to get more psychoeducation about anxiety or depression, or maybe it's a little bit more severe in the sense of you're looking to learn more about hearing voices or, you know, bipolar disorder. They have different like articles and different as mentioned, psychoeducation around it. But then they also have, you know, web like chat rooms and stuff like that where someone can post, okay, guys, I'm struggling with X, Y, Z, you know, how, how does somebody cope with this? Right. And you can connect with other people that are also struggling with that. There are uh, quizzes for, you know, to help with self-awareness and identification in terms of what are you feeling? What are you experiencing? Which is going to be huge because if you are, let's say, deciding to go abstinence, like go down that road by yourself without medical help or without any other support you need some kind of community right and that kind of that goes back to what we we're talking about before if you have a community that's willing to accept you no matter who you are what you do you'll do so much better as opposed to a community that doesn't give a shit about you fortunately but unfortunately you know sometimes we, we do have communities like that but fortunately there are online communities so if somebody listening you know has access to a computer i would definitely recommend together all and they have so many resources like that is the resource i give out after every single session every time i'm away from work for my case management clients with, you know, when I'm covering for colleagues, that's, that's the resource I give out. Like, Hey, if you haven't checked this out, you know, go from there. But yeah, that's without being specific. Cause I don't want to just narrow it down to what I know in Ontario. That, that's kind of what I would say. Like what's something that you tell addicts, like just as like to give them that hope or strength that they can, you know, get to the other side? I mean, it kind of depends on the person, but I think I'm just trying to remember. I had this one client who, um, when I was in my addiction court support role, I think we had like 12 plus sessions. Like he just kept coming back because he was doing so well. His uh, substance of choice was alcohol and he was charged with, I think, uh, driving under the influence. And, you know, he was a father of two girls. You know, his marriage was on the rocks. It's just bad news, like just a bad situation. You know, he kept coming in and he would always start a session with Alex. I'm glad I'm here, but I, I feel like I'm not doing anything. And I would look at him and be like, 
you showed up, you're here, you're in this office, like you are making a step, even though you might have slipped up and had, you know, well, slipped up in his terms and had, you know, two or three beers over the weekend, you still came here. Like you still showed up, you woke up the next day and realized that that wasn't what you wanted to do. And since then you haven't, right? So I think just reminding people that as long as they keep showing up and keep at least being willing to learn, that's going to be huge, right? Because the the second you stop showing up to your appointments with, you know, whether it's your caseworker or your doctor or whomever it may be, even if it's showing up to like social events or, you know, a coffee date with a friend, that's when, that's kind of when the substance takes over. And that's when you know that, okay, this person needs like, I don't want to say intervention because that's so tacky, but kind of that intervention, right? Like it's kind of have to say, okay, something's really wrong, but When a person is willing to show up on their own and realize that nothing is going to change unless they change and they understand that and they realize that they actually have the power to make the change, that's huge. And a lot of times I'm teaching folks. It's a very um, cognitive behavioral therapy method. So cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT is basically training your thoughts and kind of like changing your thoughts so that you change the way how you feel emotion wise, physically, and what you actually do. Um, I actually just finished my C- my CBT supervision after CBT training. So I'm a little on a CBT kick right now because it's so fresh in my mind. But basically, if you can remind and convince yourself of how much control over your life you actually have. Because a lot of times when it comes to addictions, people think that they have no control. And to some degree, you know, the, the substance might have more control than you think, but you actually have way more control than that substance. You have way more control than that drink. You have way more control than, you know, whatever you're, you're, you're doing. You have so much more control. So that's usually what I'd recommend and kind of try and teach folks and in that sense of, you know, change how you perceive your situation by telling yourself, okay, you know what? I'm not going to let X, Y, Z get in the way of, you know, my sobriety or my harm reduction methods, which is hard. I mean, I'm, of course I'm boasting like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, blah, blah, blah. But it's hard work because you are literally arguing, you're having an internal argument with yourself and That can be very hard, especially depending on, you know, how old you are, what culture you come from, you know, what your, what your substance use background is like, that can be extremely challenging. But if you just keep showing up to those internal arguments, I, I believe that that is going to be so big in anyone's recovery process, no matter what their goal is. Alex, thanks for coming on. This has been an insightful conversation. I seriously could listen to you talk for hours because you're very passionate and it, it comes through. And I appreciate you taking the time to sit and talk with us. And and obviously this, as she said, she's from Canada. So if you're listening elsewhere, the resources might be different, but they are still out there for you. And there are people like Alex who are passionate about helping and wanting you to get better and be your addiction and be in sobriety and and like alex said it's it takes work it's not something that happens overnight so with that being said alex why don't you plug your podcast again and we'll get out of here Ah, okay, perfect. So um, because of the pandemic, just going to put a little blurb here. Because of the pandemic, my friend and I, who both work in healthcare, decided to start 
you know, we need a distraction. So why not start a podcast where we talk about weird macabre things? Because of course, that's what we're interested in. So our podcast is called Weird Distractions. As mentioned earlier, you can find us every Sunday at 7am Eastern Standard Time. We're on Apple, Good Pods, Podchaser, Spotify, kind of wherever you find the Addicted series or the Jury Room podcast. So yeah, check in whenever you can. Alex, thanks for coming on. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope we get to do it again. Yes, thank you so much for having me. 